And now, and now, and now, item, 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 item with Tommy Lee. Item with Tommy Lee. Tommy Lee. Item. I'm Tommy Lee, and this is the Item Podcast, my random record button for whatever's in my head at any given time. And today, the political process hits 212 degrees and boils over in Chicago 50 years ago this week. Today's item, the week of hate in 68, item number 109. 2018 has given us a lot of dubious 50th anniversaries, things that we observe rather than celebrate, things that live on vividly in the memories of the people who lived in that time. The assassinations of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Democratic presidential candidate Robert Kennedy, which I've discussed before on this podcast, were only the tip of the iceberg for what happened in 68. I'm not old enough to remember the red-hot summer of 1968. My parents were just a year out of high school at that point, my dad in Southeast Asia, my mother waiting for him to come home. There had been signs of unrest all over the country in 68, in the previous year in places like Detroit that in retrospect were a precursor to what was to come during four very rough days in Chicago. August 26th through the 29th, 1968, the Windy City was playing host to the Democratic National Convention. The process of finding a Democratic nominee for president that year had experienced a number of twists and turns. At the end of March, President Johnson, exhausted by his four and a half years in office after he took over for Kennedy in 63 and won re-election a year later, announced that he'd had enough and he was ready for the Oval Office to be the home of somebody else's headaches for the next four years, despite the fact that he was within his rights to run for another term. At that point, he had already been facing a challenge from within his own party for the nomination in the form of Eugene McCarthy, the senator from Minnesota, as well as Bobby Kennedy, who had just announced a couple of weeks earlier, reacting to a pretty decent finish in the early primaries. Kennedy, RFK, was just starting to gain ground and make some serious strides in winning people over when he was gunned down in Los Angeles in June. George McGovern of South Dakota emerged as the candidate that would stand in for RFK's followers, though his 68 run ended up being little more than a symbolic gesture and a practice run for his 1972 campaign that ended with a nomination and a crushing defeat. For the most part, the Kennedy delegates were still up for grabs when the convention began. Now, the schism in the Democratic Party was strong in 68. This was a party that had control of the White House and both houses of Congress, but the war in Vietnam, the counterculture movement, and the hundreds of riots that year that had taken place across the U.S. had all taken their toll. This was also a time when the South had begun to seriously abandon the Democratic Party itself and start voting with the previously loathed Republicans. But this is not a podcast about Jim Crow politics. No, this is just about the Democrats, who were about to lose what had appeared to be a pretty firm grip on Washington and the future that had been building since JFK won the White House at the beginning of the decade. And all the signs were there before the convention even began. Anti-war protesters had begun arriving in Chicago in the days leading up to the opening on August 26th. These included splinters of the party known as the New Left Radicals, the Yippies of the Youth International Party, and of course the Long-Haired Hippies. 
Radical organizations took aim at the dissatisfied throngs of young people and launched a counter-convention that was destined to spill over its rim and disrupt the party's proceedings and the city itself. In fact, many of the protesters stated that they were there for the express purpose of disrupting the Democratic Convention. The protest movement was there to change the party line on Vietnam, but it mostly just deepened the divide in the party itself. By the time it was all over, a group even succeeded in nominating a pig named Pegasus as a candidate. And that was the least of the problems. The Democrats were crippled with a lack of cohesion and organization. This was a stark contrast to the GOP, whose own convention had given the official party nod to Richard Nixon, as it had eight years before, in a very orderly convention. Vice President Hubert Humphrey had also entered the race for the Democrats back in March when President Johnson bowed out, but he hadn't participated in any of the primaries, relying instead on the non-primary delegates, which were a much larger part of the political process at the time, as well as caucus delegates. Several states went into the convention with competing slates of delegates trying to be seated there, and some of those struggles, especially for Texas, became ugly before they were resolved. The noise grew louder outside the hall and within, and eventually Vice President Humphrey received the nomination with Maine Senator Ed Muskie in the VP slot, and this happened on the first ballot, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Interesting side note, one of the candidates who received votes on that ballot was football coach Paul Bear Bryant. I'm guessing it was from delegates out of Alabama. Anyway, Mayor Richard Daley, arguably one of the most powerful Democrats in the country, imposed an 11 o'clock curfew in Chicago in an effort to curtail unrest. He mobilized the city's entire force of more than 10,000 police officers. He backed his cops up with 6,000 armed National Guard troops and 1,000 intelligence officers from the military, CIA, and the FBI. By the way, another 6,000 U.S. Army troops were also ready to go at a moment's notice. Chicago was prepared for the worst, and sadly, the worst is what it received. Security was said to be so tight around the delegates and the hotels that Chicago became, in essence, a city under siege. The amphitheater that was hosting the convention was ringed with barbed wire. There were roadblocks. There were men with rifles. And on Sunday the 25th, a day before the convention began, the streets of Chicago were filled with chanting throngs shouting, Hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids have you killed today? That Sunday night saw about a thousand protesters defy the city's curfew, and they were met with about half as many police. Many of the protesters ran, some of them throwing insults at the cops, others throwing bottles or stones. When the convention opened the following day, that animosity spilled into the main floor as the Democratic Party struggled to cement its position on the war in Vietnam. The party hierarchy quickly lost control of the proceedings and never really regained it. It was therefore nothing short of a blessing or a miracle that they were able to coronate a candidate on the first ballot, but there was a great deal more poison to swim through before they got there. Tuesday night's protests were even larger than the ones on the eve of the convention, with 3,000 driven out of the park with tear gas and nearly 150 of them arrested. There were photos of police that had removed any insignia that would identify them and attacking the protesters with abandon. That was a situation that seemed to have had the papal bull of the mayor's office behind it. Journalists were accosted in the hall, famously including Dan Rather, whose effort to interview a delegate was disrupted by overzealous security personnel. The convention, and indeed the city of Chicago, were unraveling. 
It all came to a head on Michigan Avenue as that pot finally boiled over. The crowds had made the decision to advance on the convention hall, chanting, the world is watching. And it was. They were greeted with tear gas and then police clubs. The footage was piped into the screens at the convention and every living room in America. It would become known as the Chicago Police Riot, and it was a pivotal moment in American politics. It showed the deep split in the previously powerful Democratic Party, and it handed the Republicans the election with a big red bow on it. You could make the argument that 1968 was the year everything changed, when the emboldened soul of the United States that had risen to the challenge of rebuilding the world after World War II was pulled apart. The playing field was different now, both physically and metaphorically. The GOP was able to take advantage of that, electing Richard Nixon twice. It began a lengthy run of power that stretched to 1993 in the White House, with the exception of four years of Jimmy Carter at the close of the next decade. And much of that was likely a backlash to Nixon's resignation and Ford's inability to shake his aloof image. So this week, 50 years ago, was a week of hate. It changed everything. The Democrats lost the blue-collar voters. The canyon between the two sides of the economic debate widened. The tear gas and billy clubs of Chicago injured more than a few thousand protesters. They legitimized hate. This has been the Item Podcast, written and produced by me, Tommy Lee, and it comes out whenever I feel like it, at Audio Boom and wherever you just found it. By the way, if you use iTunes, please leave a review. I've been told that those are really helpful for the ratings or some related garbage. Item doesn't follow much of a regular schedule, so if you want to hear it, you got to subscribe to it. It keeps on being different things, too, so hopefully you're still finding it interesting or at least entertaining. I'm open to your thoughts at theitempodcast at gmail.com. I'd also like to invite you to check out my other podcast, The Archive, which is a work of original fiction based on my second novel, which just wrapped up recently. It's just perfect for your fall podcast binging. And as usual, thanks for listening. The item is part of the opt-in, on-demand family of podcasts. This has been Item with Tommy Lee. Podcasts by Federated Media. Podcasts by Federated Media.